welcome back for another episode of MFA Writers. It's now late May, so I believe I can safely assume the school is out for the vast majority of people. And since a big chunk of our listeners are students, I wanted to take a moment to say congratulations. Whether you have just graduated from an MFA program or an undergraduate program, or just finished a school year somewhere in between the two, you deserve a pat on the back for getting through another academic term. So again, congratulations. I hope you all have a great summer of rest, relaxation, reading, and writing. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. to MFA Writers, a podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, we've got a special episode with Maurice Carlos Ruffin. Maurice is the author of The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, which was published by One World Random House in August 2021. It was a New York Times editor's choice, a finalist for the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence, and long listed for the Story Prize. His first book, We Cast a Shadow, was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and the Penn America Open Book Prize, among others. A New Orleans native, Maurice is a professor of creative writing in the MFA program at Louisiana State University and a faculty member in Randolph College's low-residency MFA program. Today, he's going to read a short story from his collection titled Mercury Forges. Hello, and thank you for having me, Jared. So this is Mercury Forges. Um, I say sometimes that um, we plan stories for a long time before we write them. And sometimes the stories come from a spark. Mercury Forges is the name of a man I met around maybe 2008 or so. And that's all I had of his of his life, his name. And it sparked this story. So this is Mercury Forges. My job was to make sure Mercury Forges didn't escape. He was a stocky black guy in for drugs and guns. He'd gotten out of Rollins Parish twice. And no one knew how he did it. Funny thing is, he got captured within a few blocks of the prison both times. I get turned around when I'm out there, Deputy Benoit, Mercury said once. But I'll get free for good. Just you wait. When the hurricane hit and flooded everything, we brought the inmates out to the Broad Street overpass. I wasn't too panicked because one of the other deputies, Ronnie Dismas, said our families had made it out of town before the water came. It'd be easy to look after myself with them out of harm's way. Now, Mercury snuck away as soon as I turned my back. He was in the P-Row, about five blocks away, bobbing like an apple. I ran across the overpass 
and climbed down some scaffolding to his boat, which I grabbed. You see, we hadn't cuffed any of those inmates. It would have been too hard to move them all with the climbing we had to do to get the dry land. Mercury, where do you think you're going? I asked. I had a hand on my sidearm. Gotta find Humanity Street, he said. That's where my pops lives. Now I knew his dad. His dad was a good guy who brought the food plates we deputies ate for lunch. I liked his dad, but that shouldn't have mattered at the moment. I can't tell you why I didn't make him bring us back to the detention area. And after a while, we floated up to a yellow house with flood water almost to the awning. Mercury. Now he yanked the metal pole from the water and broke through the attic window and climbed in. And there was a shuffling inside, and I wondered if I should go in after him. I thought this might be part of his big getaway plan, you see. But soon, he grunted out the window and pulled his father's body out, wrapped in a heavy blanket. The old man hadn't had a chance. Bring us back, Depp, said Mercury. And that was what I did. Maurice, awesome. Thank you so much for reading that. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Yeah, one of my favorite stories in the whole collection. So I was really excited when you said you wanted to read that one. I'm a short story writer myself and and place is really important in my work. So I was super excited to find this collection, The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, a book that puts New Orleans and the people in it front and center. You're a New Orleans native and are still very much part of that community. So tell us about growing up in New Orleans and what, in your opinion makes it such a great setting for fiction? Well, you know, the thing about New Orleans is that there is uh, such a diversity of people and of, of cultures. I mean, obviously we're one city, but whatever you want, you can find it in New Orleans. You know, if you're kind of the, I don't know, if you're kind of like the business type person who wants to put on a suit and tie and work in some skyscraper, we got, we got that for you. If you're a bohemian who's come from somewhere else in the country and you know, you just want to just spend your days writing poetry or, or you know, playing a, a ukulele. We got yeah. that, too. <laughs> and we have this rich history of musicianship and of costume making, of storytelling. Um, you know, for me, you know, my city is majority black. It has been since its founding. And I can look around. I can see how um, the work of my ancestors has made the city what it is today. People always come down and they always say it's so unique. And a lot of that comes from that. That Haitian culture, that um, that Western African culture, it survives today in the food, like the jambalaya and the red beans and rice and the other food we have. It survives in our music, whether it's the bounce music that you might hear from like a, a Big Frida. And it survives in our writing where you hear our voices and you hear our, our storytelling modes. I've been thinking a lot recently about this quote from Flannery O'Connor, who said, you can choose what you write, but you can't choose what you make live. And what, and what you do really well in this book is make New Orleans and the people in it live. So have you always known that this was fertile territory for your writing or was that something you had to figure out along the way? I did not. I did not. You know, um, New Orleans is a very small town, even though I don't think people think of it that way. You know, we're not sprawling like Los Angeles. We're not now million people like uh, New York. Um, we're barely 500,000 if. Um, and so I think like a lot of young people from small towns, my plan was always to move, go somewhere else. And I had dabbled with the idea as a young man of getting into film and television or getting into maybe making comic books, whatever it was, I'd be in New York or in California. Right. And it wasn't until I had another career path and I was deep into that. 
thinking about wanting to tell stories and realizing that I come from a place that everybody's aware of. And yet you get very, very few stories out of this place. Right. We get people that visit the place and they tell stories, which is, you know, wonderful. But, you know, it's not like New York City where there's probably, you know, 80,000 writers there right now, which, you know, is wonderful. So I really felt like there was an opportunity for me as one of the few, you know, one of maybe a couple dozen people in my hometown to begin telling these stories and try to tell them in, in, a, in an authentic way. Right. Yeah, I'm one of those uh, kids from a small town that you <laughs> that you mentioned. <laughs> like, I'm from like tiny rural Missouri town. And it was the same thing. I like couldn't get out fast enough. But then I left. And several years later, when I really started getting into writing and, and specifically fiction, suddenly it was like I could only write stories about my hometown. It was like the people of my hometown, that setting was what it was what lived on the page. And like every time I've tried to like go outside of that, it's just it feels flat. It feels false in some way. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely a New Orleans writer. You know, people often say that they don't want to be pigeonholed. But, you know, what I've learned is that if you're from a very unique place or really from any place, I would say you can always tap on, into that power. Right. Being a New Orleans person means I talk a certain kind of way. I write a certain kind of way. I have a certain kind of sense of humor. I present drama in a certain kind of way. And I have all these stories and history that I can draw upon from my city that just makes it makes my work come alive. Yeah, I guess that was one of the realizations I had. It was like, you know, my hometown was like the most boring place in the world to me when I was living there. And you realize like, there are so many people who didn't grow up in a place like that. And there are so, you know, like only the people who have lived there can really tell those stories in an authentic way. And, uh, you know, they resonate with people, I find. Absolutely. People do not want generic stories. Mm. They they want, as my mentor, John Biggany would say, he said, people want news of the world told with confidence. Like, you know what mm. you're talking about. Right. And so I could, you know, I could write, you know, Wisconsin stories. I could write Montana stories, but will they be as sharp or as definite as my New Orleans stories? Probably not. Yeah. One of the funny things I realized when I tried to write, when I was trying to write stories outside of, of the setting that I knew really well was that it felt like fiction. I would read it and I was like, this is fiction. Right. Ah. And then some of the stories I would read that were set in my hometown that, for the most part, 99.9% are completely fictional, but they didn't feel fictional. They felt real. <laughs> What's your hometown, Jared? Montgomery City, Missouri. Population 3,000. Wow. Center of the country. Yeah. Center of a cornfield. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I love it. I love it. It's a great place with good people and, uh, and it's interesting. You know, It's an interesting place. So what do you think are the keys to writing about place? I think when it comes down to it, you have to come to... I don't want to say it's neutrality. It's not quite it, but I just think that at any, at any given time in a, in a writer's life, you're going to love where you're from or maybe hate where you're from. Sometimes at the, at, at the same time. I think that for me, what I've had to do is I've had to go through. So for example, I was very lucky. I think a lot of people who are from, you know, marginalized backgrounds often get the sort of mainstream take on the place they're from. So I went to a school that was, um, you know, maybe 99% African-American. And I, I, it was kind of a radical school. And they made it a point to teach us history. And it would teach not only like national African-American history or world African history, but they'd also teach like New Orleans African-American history. So I learned about these people who were literally at that time, this 25 years before, you know, marching the streets of my town during the civil rights. So I had that sort of pride from that. And then there were the things I figured out in my 20s. When I went to the sort of working world of New Orleans as a business person. And that was a very dark time in a lot of ways. And that was like a sort of negative view of my city for me. And then having to sort of, um, you know, sort of take those two views and put them together 
and then go, well, okay, that's, you know, you have one side, you have the other side, but what, what's really going on? And I think that my background allowed me to see, like, like in detective stories, they always say that like a detective is a great character because they get to go through all those society from like, you know, from the parlor in the mansion to, you know, the, the grubby bar, you know, behind the dumpster, that kind of thing. Well, so you and I, we met at AWP recently, which if anyone listening doesn't know, it's the Association of Writers and Writing Programs annual conference. And I attended a panel you were on, on the linked story collection, which, which was probably my favorite panel of the weekend. And during it, you talked about how your intention with this collection was to try to write a story about every person you could imagine in New Orleans. So that after reading the book, readers would feel like they knew the place, like they'd been there. I'm curious to hear about your process a bit. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting before you read this story, Mercury Forges, to hear that you actually knew someone with this name and that was the spark for it. So is that the way it usually works? Or, you know, I guess what I want to know is how you come up with story ideas and character ideas for this book. Well, you know, my short story journey at this point is probably almost 20 years old, if not more than that. Um, I started out sort of writing freehand, just I want to make a story. I read some interesting stories by authors that I respect. I read them in anthologies and want to try my own versions of those stories. Um, went to grad school at the University of New Orleans. And of course, in that process, you're making three stories per semester, if not more. So I did that for a while. And then after that, I began to make stories just for myself. And I got to a place where I realized, huh, these really are about the place that I'm from. And I've never really seen the place that I'm from presented like this at all even by New Orleans writers, or by writers who, who had been to New Orleans and written from their memories of New Orleans. So maybe I was like halfway into making this collection, which was a 10-year process, maybe 80% of the way into it, really, when I said, you know, okay, I've gotten so far. What have I not done? Mm. So I literally just went almost demographically. I've done children. You know, I've done teenagers. I've done, you know, men of a certain stripe. I've done, you know, ladies of a certain stripe. What have I not done yet? And so, for example, some of the last stories written, there's a, a novelette, which is the last story in there, which is about a middle-aged black woman. I've, I've never seen a middle-aged black lady as the head of a story out of New Orleans in my entire life. So I gave her that story. There was a story I've been writing for a while, and I kind of put it down and almost forgotten about it, which becomes a story about, um, it's, it's called Rhinoceros, um, which is about a non-binary teenager and that person's best friend who's a trans young woman. I'm like, okay, they should have their own place too. You sure. Give them some space. So between that and the other story that I mentioned before I let go, and also um, a story called Cesara Pittman, which is set in 1866. And it's this idea of like, I want to sort of show some of the foundations for my character's fierceness, which represents the sort of attitude of most people I know in my town. Okay, so after you have that seed for a story, you have a character and you want to write the story. Are you the kind of writer who kind of just goes in and like figures it out along the way? who like, you know, harnesses that kind of Donald Barthelmay idea of like not knowing, or are you someone who likes to plot something out and, and know what it's about before you sit down and write? This is going to sound weird. I think it's an unanswerable question. I think that people <laughs> who consider themselves to be, you know, quote unquote, literary writers, like not genre and not commercial. I think the vast majority of us write by sort of spirit and uh, through insight and through intuition. But I do think that a lot of us at a certain point, myself included, you will kind of look at what you're writing and kind of go, well, what should happen next? What might happen right. next? And I'll do like a little, for me, what happens most naturally is I will find a character's voice and I will just start to ask them what happened next. And they will talk and they'll blather and I'll hear them and I'll go, look, at that sounds very realistic, but leave out the boring parts, please. <laughs> you know, give me the exciting stuff. Give me, give me the, the dramatic moments. And so I'll get that. And, um, and then maybe about midway into the process, if I haven't gotten through a quick draft, I will 
sit down and like do a little, I call it my, my, my four part like story arc generator. So I'll go, you know, have I gotten through part one of the arc yet? Yes. I've gotten through part two of the arc yet. Yet. Uh, yes, I have. Part three is, is, is very specific in my mind. Usually I haven't figured that out yet. And so I'll go back and try and figure out how to make that work. And then mm-hmm. I'll wrap it up. So, in, in, so once I have those sort of four parts, I can make a f- full first draft and then go back and begin to make it a real tight story. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm hearing, at least partially, is like a separation of the kind of drafting and the revision, right? Like you mentioned going in and asking the characters what they want to happen next in the story. But then you're coming back later with more of that editor's view of it, you think? That's exactly right. I, I never really want to edit up front. I mean, but what I'm really trying to do at, at the initial part is to make sure I'm going in the right direction. I'm just trying to make sure that this character's voice feels real to me. And that the story that they're starting to tell is interesting to me. And if either one of those two answers is not the right answer, I'm just going to stop. I'll put those pages aside and go to the next thing that's on my plate, so to speak. And then later in the process, you know, revision probably is my favorite part because with revision, what happens is you're on solid ground. You have all the elements and then you can really surprise yourself. You know, it's the same way that you have to really train on an instrument to be really good at it. You know, I can play like basic chords on the guitar, but it takes, you know, a decade or so to like be able to improvise and create amazing, you know, uh, runs on a guitar, for example. So the same thing in the stories, I have to make sure that it's, there's a good foundation. I understand the character. And now let me go through and figure out what are the surprising bits and pieces of it. I talked to a lot of, you know, emerging writers, young writers who, um, who say that they don't revise. They don't, they don't like revising. They, they write a draft and then they feel like it's, it's good. It's done. They're ready to go. And I think part of the reason that, people can be um, hesitant to really dive into the revision process because it doesn't sound as fun as drafting, right? When you're drafting, you're coming up with the story and you're being surprised and and it's kind of the characters are talking to you and it's unfolding in front of you. I think people see revision as just editing what's there. But what I find is that I'm often surprised during the revision process. The story's going directions I didn't imagine while I'm revising it. Is it the same for you? Absolutely. Because... You know, when you're in that first draft, yes, that is primarily a time of discovery. You don't know what's going to come out. You don't know who's going to say what. You don't know where they're going to go. You don't know what the sort of major themes are going to be. Right. And that is a lot of fun. And I love that part of the writing. It's very thrilling. But really, I think the thing that makes the most memorable works are the writer getting to the end of the story, maybe three or four times and looking back and going, okay, where are there opportunities? And, you know, I'll give an example. This morning, I've been rereading um Watchmen, that graphic novel from Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. And I probably first read it maybe 18 years ago. I really liked it a lot. And I recognized that they were doing things in the text and on the page that, that are just showing me that they were paying a lot of attention. So just a quick example. I just saw, I read, I read a, a sequence this morning where there's the character, Dr. Manhattan and his, um, his girlfriend, Janie. And Janie gets mad at him because he sort of throws a glance at somebody else in the room, some young lady. And so this is like way on page, like 150, this happens, right? And they have, and she's like, you know, it's not appropriate. You know, she's, she's not even like, you know, 18 years old. We should get out of here. I'm like, wait, I've seen this before. Flip back to like page 30. And that same thing is happening from a different point of view. It's from the point of view of the guy known as uh, Night Owl. And in that version of it, all you just see is like Dr. Manhattan just kind of looking weird. And then the lady says, let's get out of here. But you don't know why they said that. And so you have to know what happens later to go back and make the earlier part uh, better. Right. And that's something that Toni Morrison talked about. She was known to write, I think, 17 drafts of every book she ever made. And that's why you can just see the, the links 
you know, on every single page, you can tell she went back and made sure that there was connected to something else happening either before that or after that. It gives, it gives this sort of rich, uh, almost spiritual quality to it. All right. Well, I, I also want to talk a bit about your writing journey. I mean, you're you're a great writer. You've released two very successful books. You have another one titled The American Daughters on the Way. You've won lots of prizes and awards. You teach at not one, but two MFA programs. So in a lot of ways, you're living the dream of many of our listeners. <laughs> but I don't think success in this business comes easy to anyone. And you've kind of alluded <laughs> already to some of your earlier struggles. So I remember in the panel, for instance, you mentioned that you dealt with a lot of rejection early in your career. What were those early writing years like? And did you ever doubt that you would make it to where you are today? I think that from a, a sort of a classical standpoint and a, a sort of psychological standpoint, to get any place, you have to make sacrifices. And so in the early part of my writing life, um, I was somebody who, like most writers, I didn't call myself a writer through that first decade, probably. This is like the early 2000s. Um, I didn't imagine that there was a writing life out there for me. I was writing stories that I could never quite finish them. They didn't really feel like stories. They just felt like vignettes at the at the you know the best version of themselves. I was a practicing corporate lawyer, and that felt very unsatisfying, but it was but it was very enriching. The money was great, and I got to a place where, amidst all these rejections, you know, hundreds of rejections over like a seven year period, thinking, well, I can keep being a lawyer, making great money. You know, people in my community like look at me and go, "That's a respectable guy. He's doing a great job," but I'm not I'm not having a good time. Or I can leave this almost easy life and I could begin to really focus fully on the writing, even though I've had very little success up to that point. And just, you know, my gut said, go for it because just, just see what comes out of it. And so in that process, I went back to school. I kept trying to publish stories. I found mentors and peers who supported me at every step of the process. And I got to a place where I would write a story and I would go, huh, that's actually a story. I think <laughs> this is actually a, you know, a story. My goodness. And I, around that time, I said, all right, this is the thing, Maurice, you got about five years, you know, you have had, you've been like almost like zero for, it was like zero for like 299 submissions, you know, it wasn't looking good. You're going to publish some stories in the next five years, or you're going to stop writing. And that last bit of pressure, I think, is what put me, put me over, the, over the line, I think, wow. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really love about this collection is the varying length of the stories in it. Some are what you might call a typical short story length, around 15, 20 pages, but most are shorter, anywhere from two to 10 pages. And at AWP, you said you used to write much longer stories. So what made you start writing shorter? I think that it was a simple process of evolution. Um, you know that old saying, you know, if if what you're doing is not working, but you keep doing it, then that's a sign of insanity. Right, right. Um, the stories that I was writing early in my MFA program when I was a student were stories that were about 25 pages. And I was having fun writing them and they were starting to seem like real stories. You know, there was a lot of characterization. There were story arcs and narrative arcs and yada, yada, yada. And yet not publishing really anything. And it was after the program where I began to tell myself, OK, so what are the different elements of your stories that you can change in a way that makes sense to you as the writer that you'll be proud of? And so one of the choices I made was going shorter. I went from writing, say, an average 25 pages per story to about eight, nine, 10 pages per story. Now, I made some changes to like the voice and the pace, and also like the level of conflict in the stories. But I do think on some level, probably the length was about half of that success. And it was, it was also a strange return to form because earlier, before I started grad school, I was writing a lot of flash pieces to train myself on how to tell stories quickly. And so that sort of combination of being able to get the, the speed of flash and the density of long stories in this sort of mid-sized story between, say, four pages and nine pages became my bread and butter as a short story writer. You said that half of your success might be uh, 
because you went shorter. Why do you think that is? Is that just a publishing thing? Like, is that what publishers <laughs> are looking for? I mean, I think it's one of those things that there are a lot of answers to that question. One of the simplest answers is, you know, print journals have dominated throughout literary history. And there are still so many great ones out there to this day that I, I myself have been in. But, you know, if you're an unknown writer and you're sending in a 40 page story, the reader is going to go like this is some unpaid volunteer is going to go through. I feel like reading 40 pages right now. Right. That's the very first thing in their mind. Right. Yeah. And then they're going to go, oh, this is actually a pretty good story if, if it's pretty good. And then it'll pass along to the next person in line, the second reader, who's going to have the same question. A 40-page story? My goodness. What is this guy thinking of? (laughs) And then if if both of them like it, then it goes to the editor, you know, the fiction editor. And and that person will have the same question. 40 pages? No. Who who is this? Alice Monroe? You know, she can do (laughs) 45-page stories. You know, maybe Toni Morrison, but not, not, you know, not this unknown Maurice Ruffin guy. So that was part of it. But then also, you know, forcing myself to really move quickly. And almost that genre kind of way, like what people do in, say, detective stories or mysteries or thrillers or what, what have you, it really forced me to consider what was important in the story. And so even though I love to have a good page worth of like, you know, setting description, you know, this is the building, this is the interior, this is the history of it, yada, 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 just sort of throwing the reader into the middle of the ocean or like the middle of the lake, so to speak, and let them swim out of it. That really created a lot of internal tension that made the stories have their own, their own rhythm and speed. When I was in my MFA program, I did a practicum with New Letters magazine. So I was reading through the slush pile and I learned a, a ton from that experience. I always recommend it to MFA students. If you can work for a literary journal, do it because I learned so much. But one of the most interesting things I learned was just how I responded to the submissions. Like you're saying, when a 40 page story comes through, I was like, oh my God, I still have 80 more of these I have to read. Like, am I really going to commit to this? And then when a story came through that was six or seven pages, I was like, oh, I have time to read through this whole thing, right? So I mentioned that you're teaching at two MFA programs, the full residency program at LSU and the low residency program at Randolph College. Is that something you recommend to your students as well to go read for a literary journal? 100%. Um, I was actually offered the position of uh, editor-in-chief at UNO's literary magazine, uh, Bayou. And in some weird way, it was like a dream come true because when I was a student at UNO in undergrad, I had submitted to the undergrad magazine and been rejected. So it was like a full mm. circle moment. You know, now right, you're going yeah. to be the boss of the entire thing <laughs> right. in the real magazine, you know? And so like my hubris was like, well, you got to say yes. You know, you have to say yes, Maurice. But I was still working full time as an attorney at that time and going to school full time. And so I asked myself, you know, why are you really here? And I'm here to write stories. Um, and so I turned that down, but I did accept, um, uh, you know, a reader's position, you know, send me some stories, I'll read them. Right. And even though I only did it like once or twice, I learned so much so fast. I mean, I get like a stack of 20 stories and I would just immediately go on the first page. Oh, this was, this was not going to work out. And I would read <laughs> to the end and I would go, yeah, you knew on the first page it wasn't going right. to work out. And so definitely that experience, it just upped my ability to read what makes the story successful so much more than it was before that. Which helps with your own writing, right? When you're going back and reading that first draft of your story, you're like, oh, this isn't working already, I can tell. Absolutely. 100%. So let's talk a little bit about teaching. How long have you been teaching? Is that something that you imagined yourself doing? (laughs) I officially started teaching, I guess, the month my novel came out. So January 2019. Okay. Um, I come from a family that has some history of teachers. My grandmother taught English uh, in high, uh, high school English and special education as well. Um, I always told myself from undergrad that I would never teach. And the reason why is because when I was in undergrad, I loved my professors of literature so much, you know, in English. 
And yet, to me, they seem bored. And it seemed like, you know, you you get your master's, you get your PhD, you have a specialty, you focus on that. But if you're not really like innovating within that area, you're teaching the same thing for your entire career, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And it just seemed a little, little bored, not even really burnout, just kind of bored. And so I said, Maurice, go out into the world and find some adventure. And so I avoided teaching. And I remember uh, about 2014, I was considering leaving law and going into teaching. And my mentor, who was a retiring professor at LSU, he said, you don't want to teach, Maurice. Just just keep writing, man. It's so much more enjoyable. And I was like, seriously, you're saying that? He was 35 years into teaching at that point. But long story short, a few years later, I got some opportunities. I was invited to teach as an adjunct at Tulane. And, you know, look, adjunctships are not very good. The pay is low. There's no benefits. Right. There's no respect in it. But like with the writing, when I was already being rejected earlier, I was saying, if I can be rejected and still love writing, I'm a writer. If I can go teach for, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, gift certificates, basically, <laughs> and, and want to keep on teaching, that's a lesson to myself. So I taught for a semester, had a very good experience. Um, I had already turned down uh, LSU before that, the previous semester. And I reached back out to them. I said, hey, you know what? I want to reconsider. You guys still have a spot open and, um, you know, uh, uh, apply competitively against other people won that competition, began teaching um, immediately. And in fact, even when that was happening, I also got on with, I think, Randolph the following years, so 2020. And so in both situations, I've, just, I've grown a lot and I've learned a lot. And I really enjoy working with new writers. All right. So stop me if I'm wrong, but I have a feeling you may not be the typical professor one might imagine in an MFA program. And hopefully <laughs> I'm not going to get you in trouble for, the, <laughs> for this. But, but at one point during your panel at AWP, you mentioned how you had encouraged your students to get arrested while they were in Seattle for the conference. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how do you see yourself as a teacher? Like, what do you think the role of a creative writing professor should be? <laughs> uh, yes, I did say that and I stand by it. Now, I didn't say, you know, for what to get arrested. I mean, you know, like, like arrested protesting for trans rights or something positive, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Um, but look, the idea being my role as a professor is, you know, to cater to the student's best writing voice. What are they trying to accomplish? I want to know what their story is, is to them and help bring that out. But also on another level, you know, I just think that sometimes what happens is that people if we're too conservative, you know, small C conservative, if we're like too quiet and we just like sitting out, sit in our apartments or our dorms and just, you know, like read poetry by Sylvia Plath and we're kind of sad and that kind of thing. Well, yes, that's a great way to experience art. But writing is about understanding human nature and understanding human history, and understanding the world at large. You must be amongst people and frankly, experiencing ups and downs, I think, to be able to encapsulate that. And so, I'm trying to encourage my students to see writing as a small part of their life. Obviously, you're going to be producing the short stories and the novels and the essays and what have you. But look, fall in love with somebody, you know, take the wrong job for a period of time, you know, travel to a country that you had considered traveling to, you know, watch or, or read uh, news from the side of, of the spectrum that you're not on and see how mm-hmm. that is. Right. And that way you can incorporate those things to your work itself. And so in my classes, you know, there's always, there's always music. There's always like video clips. There's always a lot of joking around and, you know, weird diagrams on, on the blackboard. We have a great time because I think that the page itself can be very uh, stultifying and therefore the mm. experience of teaching the page should be very exciting. Okay. So like that idea of like needing to be around other people, do you think the MFA experience can be a good thing in that regard? Being around other people, getting to know other people. Or do you think it can be a bit of a detriment to get into that writing bubble where like, I mean, in my experience, all we talked about was writing in the MFA program <laughs> while we were there. 
No, I don't want to be hypocritical about it. I mean, look, when I went back to school as a 33-year-old man uh, to get my MFA, the greatest thing about that was like on a Monday night after our fiction workshop, going down to one of the local bars and just talking for the next two or three hours about, you know, this story or that movie right, or about, right. you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, but that being said, I think that the writer has to work to not, oh, how to say this? I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not the first person ever, to ever say this. The writer is an outsider. And so it's this idea that if people around you are all doing the exact same thing, you should not be doing what they're doing. And so when I was in grad school, for example, I did notice that a lot of people spent a lot of time at the bar just hanging out. And then I'd see them in class like the next week and it was time for the story to be turned. I'd say, how, how'd, the, how'd the story go? Oh, I just wrote it last night. I'm like, wait, you just like wrote it like in three hours? Like you didn't like take more time to think it over? No. Me and my best friend were the opposite. We went, we went out like maybe once a week, if that. Um, and we spent a lot of time writing and trading our stories back and forth and making them better and better and better. And even like hearing people like submitting a story and have to pay like, like a, you know, a $10 submission fee. And, and, and I would say to my friends, do, do the same thing. And they would go, but then I can't buy beer. I'm like, well, what's more important? Like getting your stories into the world or like buying the beer, you know? Yeah, it's a different, it's a difficult line to walk, right? I mean, like, cause I agree that one of the best parts of my experience in the MFA was like the community getting to know people, getting to know professors as well who had, had like made a career out of it, seeing people who had actually accomplished this thing that I for so long felt almost impossible to me, right? It was nice to spend time going out with those people, but at the same time, you can't lose sight of like putting in the time to actually write. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, I'm living the dream right now. Yeah. This idea that I you know, have two books out and one on the way and then I'm teaching in two different programs. And I'm traveling and meeting uh, readers and writers constantly. This is better than I ever thought it could be. Hmm. Well, congrats. You deserve it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. One thing you talked about that really resonated with me at AWP was this idea of finding joy in your writing, that it was important to have fun and enjoy the work, which in my experience can be easier said than done. I think if students aren't careful, the MFA can strip you of some of that joy. It can make you competitive. It can make you feel obsessed with getting published, obsessed with your career, all of which can kind of distract from what I think is the most important thing, which is the art. So how do you suggest protecting and fostering that sense of joy in your work? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, yeah, I've thought a lot about that the past few years. I mean, especially with the pandemic and mm -hmm. with the previous few election cycles, it can feel pretty bleak. Um, I encourage all writers to remember their favorite stories. I mean, what, if, what, what were you reading when you were 10 years old that made you really excited? And how about when you were 16 years old, when you were 25 years old? When you sit down to write anything, you should do it with a sense of playfulness, with a sense of this is going to be great. You know, I had a friend. She said she would sit at her at her typewriter this back in the day, and she'd look in the mirror and she'd kind of smile and go, "You know, I'm as good as Virginia, as Virginia Woolf," and that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it may seem a little weird, but I just think that the idea of the suffering writer, like that sort of the French writer in the garret in Paris who's freezing and they have no you know no food and stale bread and it's, it's all about suffering. It's like no 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 no. No, no. Human nature requires that you enjoy what you're doing to keep on doing it over a long period of time. Otherwise, you sustain too much damage and you stop or the writing becomes stale. And so for me, I'm always trying to find that place that feels a little dangerous, but also a lot of fun. I try to approach it as, as if I was like a, a masked adventurer in a comic book. You know, what's out there in the dark? Well, let's go find out. Right, right. I mean, there was that study that came out years ago where they, they found that like just smiling at yourself in the mirror actually improved your mood, right? Literally. <laughs> that same friend gave me that idea like probably over 10 years ago. I do it myself all the time. Yeah, it helps. So what are some concrete 
examples of, you know, like what we can do to foster that joy, to keep it going, to keep the spark, I guess. I think that for me, what I do in my actual writing practice is that there is almost always a time in any story or essay or novel that I'm writing where I just feel a little bored, a little tired, a little burned out. And I literally ask myself, what would make this thing I'm doing right now feel more joyful? So maybe something simple like, you know what, this third person point of view is kind of a drag. Let's try first person. Or maybe maybe something crazy. Like, look, I just uh, wrote a draft of something yesterday. And the very last line is, let's get out of here, the gerbil said. <laughs> now, am I going to keep that in line? I have no idea. But it just felt funny. It made me laugh to write that. I'll right. I, I send a little screenshot to my friends of the gerbil said, you know, and they were yeah. like, what? You know, so that's fun. And then in the rest of your life also, you know. I think the idea of being kind to yourself is something that's often pushed aside as this sort of new age nonsense, but it's a real thing. We must be kind to ourselves. We must do things that make ourselves feel happy to be alive in this, in this human life. And so for me personally, it's things like watching good movies, you know, whether it be, you know, uh, some big uh, modern drama or some classic from, you know, Italy or Japan or, or watching a black and white movie or watching some anime or reading a graphic novel. I'm always trying to find things that makes my, my brain feel happy. And so, you know, cook, cooking for myself and my friends, you know, those kind of things. So it's just keep reaching out. Obviously, life is hard, but guess what? It has been ever thus. I'm sure <laughs> there was somebody in a cave, you know, 80,000 years ago saying the exact same thing. And yet we as a species are very good at being able to push back through our creations against that darkness. We made life for crying out loud. <laughs> well, I, I'm tempted to just end it right there, uh, but <laughs> but I, I do have one more question that I that I uh, want to ask you that I ask faculty members when they come on the show, which is what, in your opinion, makes someone a successful MFA student, and what pitfalls should our listeners try to avoid? Yeah, I think that the most important thing a person should bring into MFA in an abstract sense is a willingness to be broken down. And what I mean by that is that I'm somebody who now, I'm arguably overeducated. I have a BA in English, uh, a minor in sociology, a JD in law, MFA in creative writing. <laughs> I got a master's in psychology. <laughs> and there's probably something else out there I'm forgetting right now. I have a lot of education. But what I noticed in every incident was that you walk into a program, it's one person, and you leave as another person. And part of that process is you're broken down if you're lucky. If you walk out as the same person, you wasted your time and your money. On a more practical level, I think your attitude, this is the old saying, I'm not sure if it's, if it's just like my neighborhood or whatever, people say your, your attitude determines your altitude. And so I remember I went into the program with the sort of first principle of making myself the best writer in that context that I could be. And so, for example, when questions get asked, hey, Maurice, do you want to live your dream of being the editor of the magazine? What's my first principle? You know, being an editor of a magazine or writing great stories? It makes those, those answers come a lot faster. Um, and then lastly, I would just say that if you, if you know why you're there and if, and if you're willing to break yourself down, let them break you down a little bit, you're open. And when you're open, anything is possible. And so you were trying to look around and see what is valuable to you as a writer in those moments. You know, who are the mentors and the peers and the craft books and the collections of stories and the novels and the architecture magazines and what have you that feel like they're actually going to be feeding you? And so... I had people in my program who I thought were better writers than me, and yet they were so distracted. You know, maybe they were depressed clinically. Maybe they just had the wrong attitude. They just felt like it was their job to feel like they shouldn't be enjoying it too much. Maybe they didn't want to feel competitive. Maybe it was the idea of, well, if, I, if I'm too competitive, that's not what art is about. 
And therefore, I should always be you know, laying back from like submitting work and submitting to contest and, you know, traveling and applying for awards, and that kind of thing. But again, it is hard. And if you are willing to sort of put your, yourself out there and try really hard, people begin to respond positively. In my five year plan I mentioned earlier, I begin to get publications. I begin to win prizes. I begin to have people you know, seeking my advice. And I go, you know, if people are looking for your advice and you're probably doing something well, you're doing the right thing for yourself. And, and it all felt good. That was the bottom line. The stories felt good. I was proud of my stories. Um, I felt good about, the, about, you know, my newest ideas and trying to get into them and make them actual, um, you know, narratives. And so as a student, your job is, to, you know, to, to be almost trite, you know, keep your chin up, stay open, be moving forward at all times, be willing to embrace new experiences and above all, have a good time. But not just drinking beer, <laughs> have a good time, like, you know, writing the stories and talking to your uh, colleagues yeah. and challenging yourself to go beyond your current skill set. Well, Maurice, I, I knew this was going to be an awesome conversation, and it was. I really appreciate it. I, I feel like I I want listeners to know. I came up to you after your panel at AWP, and I got about two sentences into my pitch to get you to come on the show, and you said, <laughs> say no more, I'll do it. And I, <laughs> I, I, re- I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate you just taking the time to like talk to uh, someone who's still trying to figure it out. And, and I know that all of our listeners who are still trying to figure it out are going to have a lot of great advice uh, from this episode. So thank you so much. Jared, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, Thank you for reaching out. This is a great show. Thanks so much.